Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. We're taking a second holiday week this week because, well, to be honest, COVID impacted our May taping schedule a good bit. So this week, I'm excited to reach into the Man Podcast vault for my 2015 conversation with Marilyn Minter, whose work mashes up Caravagist grit with fashion industry glamour. Right now, Minter is included in Women Painting Women at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. It'll be on view through September 25th. The show features 46 female artists who choose women as subject matter in their works. It was curated by Andrea Carnes. Sneak preview will have another Women Painting Women artist on next week's show. The conversation you're about to hear was taped on the occasion of a mid-career survey of Minter's work that opened at the Contemporary Arts Museum Houston before traveling to Denver, Orange County, and Brooklyn. Marilyn Minter, after the break. This summer, the Getty Center is celebrating its 25th anniversary. Since the center opened to the public in 1997, the expansive campus has welcomed millions of visitors from around the world who enjoy the stunning architecture designed by Richard Meyer, landscaped gardens and terraces, including the Central Garden, designed by artist Robert Irwin, and world-class paintings, photographs, sculpture, decorative arts, manuscripts, and drawings collections. You're invited to a summer of celebrations, including an outdoor concert series, community festivals, family fun, and a special audio tour highlighting the site's history. Plan your visit, view related events, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego reopens in La Jolla on Saturday, April 9th, with the special exhibition Nikki de Saint-Fall in the 1960s. The exhibition explores a transformative 10-year period in Saint-Fall's work when she embarked on two of her most significant series, the tears, or shooting paintings, and the exuberant sculptures of women she called nanas. Nikki de Saint-Fall in the 1960s is co-curated and co-organized by Jill Dawsey, Senior Curator, Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, and Michelle White, Senior Curator, the Menil Collection Houston. Don't miss out on being the first to view a movement in every direction, Legacies of the Great Migration at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition asks 12 contemporary artists to trace their personal stories through the Great Migration and explore their family connections to the South. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition will unveil newly commissioned works across media. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Support for the MAN podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. This spring, the Pulitzer presents Assembly Required, an exhibition featuring nine artists whose work invites your active participation. Engage with work by Francis Elise, Rashid Arin, Saya Armajani, Tanya Bruguera and Instar, Ligia Clark, Elio Oidesica, Yoko Ono, Ligia Pape, and Franz Erhard Walter. Created between the 1950s and the present, the artworks respond to distinct social and political moments, from unrest in the United States during the Vietnam War to Peru's military dictatorship. The artists offer unique perspectives on social change, addressing the need for optimism and hope in the face of global tensions. The exhibition poses questions about how art allows us to imagine new ways of being in the world. Assembly Required opens March 4th and is on view through July 31st, 2022. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Scene Changes, sculpture from the collection of Sheldon Museum of Art, 
presents a broad range of artistic approaches to sculpture, from exploration of the physical potential of material and form to use of the medium's capacity to convey concepts and narratives. The exhibition opens with sculpture deeply rooted in modernism, seminal works by Louise Bourgeois, Alexander Calder, and Isamu Noguchi, each a historical linchpin of the medium's evolution in the 1950s. Moving forward in time and practice, a second selection of works highlights modernism's concern with the distillation of primary form and pure materiality, as seen in works by Anne Truitt and John McCracken. To these, the museum adds simplified forms imbued with implicit narratives, works by Martin Purrier and Ursula von Reidingsvart. The exhibition follows sculpture's progression into a medium that examines contemporary issues and tells complex stories, with works by Leonardo Drew, Nicholas Gallinin, and Amanda Ross Ho. The Scene Changes is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from February 2nd through July 2nd, 2022. And we're back. Marilyn Minter, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to start with the earliest paintings in the show instead of with your more recent stuff, which is more famous. The earliest paintings in the show date to the mid-70s. Let's start with a 1976 painting that juxtaposes a piece of plywood against a linoleum floor and a 1977 painting that shows the spill of a brown liquid on the same linoleum floor. And these strike me as two paintings that right off the bat establish your interest in surface and, and ways of representing surface on, at that point, canvas. Why were you interested in surface? You know, it's so interesting. Everyone asks why I do everything, and I guess that's your job, but... My experience has been I just have this urge to, to do it, and I figure it out later why I did it. And, I, you know, especially when I, I mean, when I saw all the body of work from the 70s up until the present in Houston at the install, it hit me. There's the same threads through everything. And, and, and what's, you know, it's really specific is everything is pink and green from the very earliest work. These floors were all these kind of green linoleum floors or green gray it's always this kind of not bright pinks and greens and at the time I was in retrospective there's also a photograph of a piece of plywood on a painting of a piece of plywood on the linoleum floor photos on the floor from 1976 right you notice that one of them is a photo of a piece of plywood so there's this and then there's also a ceramic piece in the show that I made. I made these black and white clay photographs in 19, I'd say probably 1979. That's right. Clay Polaroid, 1979. It's glazed stoneware. And it's also a piece of plywood on the floor. So I, I thought of myself as a conceptually based photorealism. Now, when I went around to try and get a gallery to show me in New York City at the time, they said, well, yeah, you're a photorealist, but you're so boring. You know, I didn't have any shiny balls, you know, to show off my technical masturbation. But I was technically a masturbator if I needed to be one. <laughs> I mean, I could always copy anything. Well, they're, they're fascinating paintings for, for lots of reasons. And there, there are a couple of artists who kind of were maybe playing on the same field and who I'm wondering if you were paying attention to at the time. One of them is Sylvia Plymac Mangold. It's so stunning. Every I always thought she worked on... With wooden floors, that's and that, I, that's why I went to linoleum. And then she said, "Yeah, I had no idea she was doing linoleum." 
I knew her doing measurements with rulers when I was in grad school. I thought they were brilliant. And uh, 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 and then she opened linoleum floors too, and everyone thought I copied her, but I was blind to her. I was like a kid. You know, I, I didn't even know. I just moved to New York in 76. I didn't even, you know, I wasn't paying any attention to anything around me and I it really felt terrible because I uh, I was just you know it was that moment where you're you know you're pretty or an artist is like just concentrating on their own vision but she was as close to being we were very tangentially working on the same thing but too bad we never met or you know got to talk to one another because we had a lot in common I thought she was a lot better and smarter than I was too with the rulers and measurements and then she stopped doing it all together. Another artist who came to mind immediately, uh, we were talking about photos on the floor from 1976 a moment ago, is Michael Snow, who was also playing with questions of representation and reality and duplication. The filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. And, and photographer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I, I just barely know the name. I do the, I thought he was a filmmaker. He did. Oh, God. He was. He did. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, there was a thing on static. Yeah, what was the name of that? It was a famous movie. Yeah, Michael Snow, the single, the single shot wavelength piece. It, and and then the, kind of the third artist, and this is probably much more tangential, is your your sink study of 1978 plays with surface and texture in a really interesting way. It, it there's a block of frozen peas, there's a drain, and there's an egg and that has been broken open. And the yolk is on the surface of the sink, and the shell is kind of surrounding the yolk. There is a lot going on in that painting. I was interested in, in at that point. I did another one that the the peas are out of focus, and everything. And the only thing I did it like I was doing these pairings where I thought of focus and non and non-focus, almost like I was the camera. It's sort of like what I'm working on today where the peas and the inside of the sink is out of focus and only the rim is in focus. And, uh, but that didn't make the show because we couldn't find it. <laughs> you know, as I was looking at the painting, I, I was thinking to myself, oh, that's, that's a familiar thing. And eventually I remembered that Ed Ruscheh has painted peas and he's kind of playing with realism and surface, but in a totally different way. I was thinking, you know, honestly, what, what I think of is it was, I did a lot of a Richter studies with focus and non-focus, not knowing he existed. But I was in my 20s and, I, you know, I read art magazines, but Richter wasn't in any art magazines in the 70s. So it was, you know, the collective unconscious. I was really thinking all the time about focus and non-focus. There's one detail in that painting that I'd like to spotlight, and it's on the lower right where one of the eggs... So, so, so you have kind of framed the, the painted image with kind of a black outline, kind of like a black pencil style outline, and everything is within, you know, everything in the sink is within that outline. And one thing comes just outside of that outline on the far lower right of the canvas, the shadow of the eggshell. Oh, you're like, you're like a detail person like me. These are kind of... I noticed nobody else pays any attention to that was basically just a way to model and going out you know like if i was trying if i was going to cut it there which i never did i always this is the you know i really wanted these to be i was actually thinking constantly about showing it as an illusion so i wanted the the the, the uh test colors on the side for the peas and the so I wanted to just extend that illusion 
wasn't uh, it was an unconscious way to just go outside that the rectangle to mm-hmm. make it make you know that it's I'm creating an illusion. I, I also did at the same time. See, I had a at the time in the, the 70s, and this is a terrible thing, but I don't I don't I don't have anything but slides of these images because I was getting no attention. I just sort of oh I must not be very good. I had no confidence, so I just sort of let these things disappear. But I actually used to paint black and white photos, and I would actually just enlarge them. Like instead of, there were 8 by 10 photos in those days. I printed them in my dark room. And then I'd make a painting of a black and white photo of one of these really boring things like peas in the sink or a pencil on a table. But I'd, I'd, I'd leave it in a raw canvas frame like this. You understand what I'm saying? I do, I do. And, and and listeners will too if they look, go to manpodcast.com and look at the image of this painting. It's yeah, it's pretty do have clear. And I just would stick them on the wall right next to the sinks. So it was just you know I thought they were really smart, but nobody else did. Well, I think glazed stone the, the glazed stoneware piece, clay Polaroid that we were talking about a moment ago, is really smart. And I wonder why that is something you tried and did. Well, I was really playful and curious. I always have been. Like, I'm super curious on esoteric things. And I was at this place called Oxbow on a residency. And I didn't have, and I was there for just a month. So I, I needed too much, I needed too much of a setup. So what I, so I, the only, you know, to make any art at all, I thought I'll just make, I'll just work with clay. Cause I didn't want to, I didn't want to transport all my paints and, you know, for just one month, it took me too long to make a painting. So I just took uh, a piece of paper and I and I dipped it in slip. And since I was painting actual paintings of black and white photos, I thought I'll just make a black and white photo. And at the time, no one had ever seen it before. And I made a whole bunch of them, but uh, you know, like I said, nobody paid any attention to me, so they just broke over the years. This is the only one I had left. I just glazed the photo surface, the photo surface of a piece of plywood on a on a linoleum floor. So that piece is is dated to 1979, and there's a seven-year gap in the exhibition between that 1979 piece and 1986's Big Girls. Ah, I was in rehab. <laughs> That'll tell you everything. <laughs> so you made nothing, or well, you no, just no, made I nothing made you like? A lot of work, but it's just so terrible. Uh, the, uh, I did I did do a body of work that's very good in, in 1983 to 85 with a, a German artist Christoph Kohlhofer, and it was a collaboration. And it's sort of a blank area. That's interesting. You notice most people don't even notice, but I will talk about that. Uh, there was this moment in time where in the 80s and early early late 70s where there was this huge the art world at that point. I don't know how old you are, but there were there, when I, I, I'm old enough to know there were art movements that lasted five years. Sometimes there were two of them. Sometimes there were minimalism or and or concept. And then there was the beginning of conceptualism. And then there was this giant movement that hit New York called neo-expressionism. And a lot of the neo-expressionism artists were German artists. And of course, then the American version was Julian Schnabel. And so there, there was really this privilege of, I'd say, I'd say that the gestural mark. And since I was, I, I always had this gift to be able to copy anything, I could, 
create that illusion, but I saw how phony it looked. It just, I knew, and, and, and even in my, you know, what I collect, I'm a big collector. I love art. I, I, that's all I ever want to buy. I'm only interested in art I can't, I, I don't do. You know, I love gestural painting. I love Cy Twombly and Mary Hallman. And, uh, you know, I, I could create that illusion, but I, it never looked legitimate. And so I did this, like a lot of young artists, I wanted to fit into, I was ambitious, but no confidence. And I really wanted to fit into the, a dialogue. And I was getting shut out. Everyone said, oh, loosen up, loosen up. And because I'm, I'm naturally a very, you know, what's the word? I'm a builder. You know, I build paintings. And uh, I'm very analytical. And I, I'm very labor intensive. And I take a really long time. And the gestural mark does not come natural to me. And I didn't trust uh, the fact that what I did very well just seemed like too easy. I didn't trust exploring and expanding that. I thought I had to challenge myself. So I made terrible, terrible gestural paintings. And my and they were just dreadful. And that's why you don't ever see any of those. And then I got together with this German artist and we worked in the Lower East Side, East Village. And that was a, you know, that's a yeah, that's a punk scene in the 70s and early 80s. And I did what everybody else was doing and I did it a little more basically. I got clean and sober in 1985, and then I I started thinking on my own and taking much more risks, and that's when I went back to being able to trust that I have a gift for copying and making that part of my my art. Now, the in the interim between me doing those terrible gestural paintings, I was in that collaboration team with a German artist we showed at Gracie Mansion. And we made some pretty good paintings and he was doing the gestural mark and I was painting realism and we were topping, we were, we were making image sandwiches. They look really good to me now, but he's still, he's in Germany and I don't know how to get old. We, 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 we split ways a long, long time ago. One of them is in the catalog too. This um, one, of course. Yeah. Yep. Strange fruits from 1986. Looks pretty good, huh? Yeah, it does. It really does. And there are some hints there maybe even about where you were going to go. Yeah. Someday I'm going to show them. At about this time, coming out of the mid-80s, you also move from painting on canvas to painting on panel. That's because I saw Gerhard Richter's paintings at Barbara Gladstone, the, the early work of the paint swatches, and they were all cracked. And he was using enamel paint, and I saw, uh-oh, this is my future, because they were like 20 years old then. So I thought I better go to enamel uh, on metal, because that will not crack. It's not brittle, and it's easy to move. Ah, so it was more you were thinking about Archival. the future lives of the objects rather than a certain surface. Yes, exactly. You know, if we go back into kind of nutty art history, I, I or, or the nerdy art history, I love, you know, 17th century paintings on copper. I love those surfaces. Did you have to learn how to adjust to a very different, to a metallic surface after having worked on canvas? Uh, well, when I did the canvas, I used to paint layers and layers of enamel, so in sand between. So I created the exact same surface on metal. So you were already prepared for it. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't that much of a and 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 I've also had to adjust every time. There was a moment in time when when I had enough money to actually fabricate the panels, and everybody we different fabricators use different auto body paint to spray the surface, and that was the real that was the biggest adjustment. And then we now we're doing everything in house. We do everything in house except print the photos. We build all the panels. We build the sets for the videos. 
you know, I have a, I have a really tight crew here of six. Nine people, I think. Not anymore. Six. Not anymore. Now down to six. Yeah, heartbreaking. They're getting too successful. I have, you know, they're making more money. <laughs> you mentioned that you paint in enamel. You have for, you know, since at least the late 80s, frequently included hands and fingers in your paintings. And we see lots of nail polish in your paintings. Is there a relationship between the enamel we see on fingernails and, and, and the stuff you make your paintings out of? Well, it's, it, the only relationship is the same name. They're very, very different paints. And the way I use it... But there's a reference there. It, yeah, they're called... Or, there could be. Are you, are you talking about the food porn specifically? Well, starting there, yeah. I always want to point this out to people. I don't know if you noticed, but there's half of these... Not half, but one, two, three, four of these hands are men hands. Man hands. <laughs> I did notice that. And in one of them, for example, is, is holding corn on the cob in a suggestive way. Yeah, yeah. That, I'm glad you... I mean, you can't miss... You yeah. can't, I mean, yeah, I think it's... People just... Um, you do notice details. You're, you're right. You're like the same kind of uh, wavelength. And so, I, you know, because I was going in, into uh, cookbooks to get the images, and they were mostly man, men's hands, frankly. And so I just changed them into female hands all the time, half the time. But that's uh, nobody ever notices that. And I guess when I was trying to create, at this point, I was still touching on illusionistic gestural painting but i was faking it i was doing the underpainting but i was letting it be as messy as possible i wasn't cleaning it up because enamel just automatically drips and i liked the way i would run a color and it, and and i love just like putting it in and watching it fall apart and then i'd let that dry and then my assistants and myself would turn the projector on and put the dot screen in and so it was this fake mechanization too because it looked like it the surfaces were screened, but they were all hand-painted dots. So it was really this kind of fake expressionism and fake mechanization. And that's how – and I made them all just to make a TV commercial. Yeah, the, the, the TV commercial is – you know, ran on late-night television in, I think, 1990. Yeah, 1990. Uh, yeah, we, we filmed it in 89, and we – and I made the paintings in 89. And I paid everybody – with these paintings because I had no money. How much do you think it costs to rent 30 seconds on David Letterman? The, I don't know, but I do know that it was less than an ad in art form at the time. It was $1,800. <laughs> and nobody knew because you're only buying sections of the country. Yeah, I only bought the tri-state area. And uh, it's like nobody even knew this. I couldn't believe it. Have you been tempted to do that since then? Oh, yeah. But the difference is the internet. Why bother, you know? But I did make this video that's also in the retrospective, I did make Green Pink Caviar a one-minute version. I made it specifically to go, I thought I could talk movie theaters into putting it in between their movie trailers. And nobody, and I was only going to go to art theaters, like the Sunshine or Angelica or if I, you know, IFC. Everyone turned me down except for the sunshine. Green Pink Caviar is a 2009 video we'll get to in a minute. It's um, in Moments Collection. Well, I'm glad you brought up the, the bit about enamel and, and dripping and, and kind of how you made those paintings. Cause... Well, I couldn't do expressionism in the real way, so I had to fake it. I mean, I could, but it looks so phony. Yeah, I, had to, I mean, that's interesting. Cause, so take a piece like Chiaroscuro from, from 1991, which is enamel on metal. It, it, it's dripping. It's kind of granular. I painted it with a projector on, and then I went over it with uh, dots. 
to try and, you know, it's dripping. And then I, I just literally tried to hold it into place with, with an image of masturbation, which nobody ever was ever doing. <laughs> I'm curious about how you got from embracing and encouraging that kind of granularity in 1991 to where you get 15 or 20 years later where the images are much slicker, much smoother, much higher polish. I don't mean that as a metaphor. I mean, like, actually higher polish. I learned, I, I actually was, you know, I, I got really versatile in enamel. So instead of painting enamel, like, uh, expressionistically, like I am in uh, in uh, chiaroscuro, I and, and the food porn and pretty much all of the uh, as we call them the porn paintings, I learned how to work with enamel in translucent layers. And as soon as I got, I, I learned about the depth that I could get with putting thin, thin, thin layers on top of one another in the paintings. I was hooked. So technical proficiency opened doors. Yes, it turned. It changed. Yeah, it looks so much better to me than oil or acrylic because I had always worked in oil or acrylic and uh, I was really good at it but I never ever got the kind of surface because I'm so interested in surfaces as you see and details and things that most people ignore that I couldn't get I never could get that in oil it was like whoa I thought I was died and went to heaven you know these these paintings from the late 80s and early 90s are are really kind of beautiful visually seductive paintings and when we think of that period in New York now, we think of a place that where, where, where artists were, you know, suspicious of beauty, if not downright hostile to the idea of. So were you conscious of that at the time? Were you conscious of that kind of anti-beautyism or is that only the kind of thing we notice later? Back to, you know, like I'm pretty curious. So I, I know what's going on all the time, but I sort of didn't care. You know, it wasn't like I could, like, I, I there are certain, this is one of the reasons that Bill and Alyssa are doing the show is because they want to give me, a, uh, they want to foreground my work in conceptual thinking, because they don't think, they think that's missing in academia. And I know that it is, and I know there's always going to be suspicion, suspicious of anything that, that's too seductive. But I, you know, I like the idea of, of uh, making paradox in all in, in everything I do I want there to be men, multiple layers and and to have anything that might be disturbing I can create such a, a I, I want to create such a beautiful soup that you can uh, actually be able to see uh, another layer because it's it's I, I make it look so good or I try to anyway like I could paint spit strands you know, and but if I paint it so beautifully that it's not going to be make you want to gag. Well, that's something that you've become the kind of starting in the mid 2000s that caught on immediately. I'm thinking of a painting like Strut from 2004 at SF MoMA. And it's a painting of a woman's heel in a Christian Dior high heeled shoe with some kind of blingy rhinestones on the top of the heel. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com, of course. And so there had always been, or there had for a long time been a lot of texture in... in... I started and I, I learned how to um, model. I let go of the dot screen because you still QR Skiro. And then I'll, and I guess at about 1997, 98, the drips were gone. 
and I just started the, the technique that you, you, you think you associate my work with now, and that is the layering of enamel with it, it probably uh, I was doing it for a while, but I got I started getting attention in, in 2003. So, so with the with the drips of the enamel in in the, in the mid '90s, there's kind of a certain grit to the surface and technique of making those paintings. And in in the early aughts, we get we get a high degree of finish in the paintings, and the grit you know is on the heat on the woman's heel. There, there's a lot of dirt on her heel. Was that a conscious migration, or is that? It was you know the idea. Well, I, I was very conscious because I. I was already working with dirty feet with a great manicures, a pedicure, excuse me. In photographs as early as the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah, dirty feet, which is everyone has, you know, you, live, you work in the garden, you know. You, I mean, Caravaggio has, yes. Yeah, people's feet get dirty. And I just, it's like never, you know, ever see it, you know, you never, ever, ever see it. And, uh, I, I, you know, except everybody knows it. There's nobody painting images of it. And then uh, it, it all it all comes down to this constant paradox when you look at glamorous images. It's another layer that there's this you know gives you enormous pleasure, uh, but there's also all this shame about oh my God why am I looking at this shallow debased imagery? And then there's another layer where oh wow I'll never look that good you know and I shoot these people and I happen to know they don't even look that good. You know, there's just a brief second you can uh, create that illusion of. And there's a part of me that always rebelled at, uh, at advertising imagery. But at the same time, knowing I got so much pleasure out of it, I wanted to show what it feels like. So I wanted all those layers and all the images. I, you know, it's really about how it feels. So and, you know, we, you know, the fashion industry is so easy to criticize you know, why would I do that? And people criticize, I mean, people, uh, you know, I have, I've been criticized because I don't take pot shots at the, uh, at the glamour industry because it, why should I? Women deserve to have images of pleasure, you know, and, and they should deserve to be able to make them too, no matter who it offends. But you could have, so, so to take strut, you could have, you know, her foot could be clean, but you enjoyed the dirt and the grit, both on her foot and on the bottom of the of the shoe. Well, I understand that maybe a foot could get dirty, and I noticed through advertising that they would place grains of sand on, on a foot to sort of show, oh, look, a little dirt here and a little dirt there. So I really just took a trope that already existed in the fashion industry, and I just pushed it all the way. Whereas, you know, jewels in the mouth, they, there's a whole history of artists, photographers, specifically commercial photographers, kissing the diamonds, you know, or, and I just shoved jewelry into my model's mouth until she gagged and just took pictures and paintings, or, or even an egg. There's all these images of, of models uh, kissing eggs, and I just had her bite into it and letting it run down her cheek. And Well, you mentioned kind of things not typically shown in in fashion photographs and in photographs that are meant to be fashionable. And that brings me to freckles. Uh, they're always wiped out. I feel like I'm responsible for putting freckles back into the imagery. Yeah, so first, tell me why you love freckles. Because I'm covered in them. <laughs> and I hated them all my life. Oh, yeah. I know, you know, I'm, I'm not, I was never, I you know, every single female that lives 
at my age group has got such body dysmorphia, I'm sure. And, 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 and then when you talk about young girls, it's doubled and tripled. I mean, the way, at least when I was growing up, I looked at human bodies. You know, now the models are just not even, I mean, you want to give everybody, you want to take them and feed them. And that is the de rigueur, you know, it's, and they're, they're, the, I always say you can't, the, I always quote Clark Toe, and I think he said that you have, must forgive fashion everything because she dies so young. I love this female grotesquerie that's coming out right now. These artists like Petra Carlins and Sandy Kim. I know this is a punk reaction, or at least I think it is. To, to having to look at these flawless, poreless, ribcageless, thigh gap images that are constantly perpetuated through the industry right now. So I, I love that these young girls are just saying, oh, fuck you. Well, the, the painting that's in the show that's probably the best example of this is Blue Poles. Oh, yeah, from... yeah, yeah, the pimple. <laughs> well, the pimple and the freckles. And kind of the imperfection or the, you know, the, the non. But I put glitter on her eyes so she looks so pretty. <laughs> yes. So there's kind of an intersection of things here that, that I'd, I'd like to ask about. First, the title of the painting. Well, Jackson Pollock. So absolutely intentional. So did the title come before the color on her eyes? No, I usually I figure out the title right when I'm finishing. You know, we'll have an image of this on the website. But so the, the, the freckles and her nose t and, and, and the area just below her eyes that, that, that is covered with freckles takes up kind of this triangle on the lower third of the painting. You have big blue glittery eyeshadow on the left and the right. And you have eyebrows with a pimple and kind of real eyebrows, not kind of fake photoshopped eyebrows at the top of the painting. And then in the middle, very middle of the painting is the closest the painting's skin, the, the, the model's skin, comes to being what you would see in, in Vogue. Yeah. Well, you know, this is a really interesting model, too. I've used her all the time. She's she's actually, if you saw her, and in, in, she was one of my students, and she's the armpit also. The, she's in the, all so many of my images. She's like two generations of black and white. Her grand, Both sides of her family, black and white, grandparents and parents. Or, or mixed race. And so this young girl, I guess she's in her 30s now. I guess she's, uh, I'm, I'm, I've known her since she was 18. She is, has got pretty white skin, but she's covered in freckles and she's got stereotypical African, uh, American lips and uh, hair. And she's just gorgeous. <laughs> I'm just madly in love with the way she looks. I always was. Did when you made? Do you remember if when you made this painting, you thought of those zones of the painting as kind of, I don't know, different stages on which to do those different things: freckles, glitter. Yeah, all of the above. Yeah, I was just, I was just always thinking. Uh, but I, I, I thought that I, I've sort of been taking out the narrative lately. I started, I guess, with the bubbles and seeing things through blowing bubbles or blowing bubble gum up and then there were freckles and bubbles and then from there it went to green pink caviar the video and and i've been working under glass ever since so i'm really making another layer between my viewer and the image creating an illusion of another image between us you know you mentioned green pink caviar so so let's go there next this is just an extraordinarily colorful 
piece, and I thought it might be a good way to talk about color. How how did you determine? I mean, there's green, there's pink, there's kind of a an, an icy blue. How did you think through what colors should should be there in what in the various versions of of how that of, of what this piece became? This is a this is a, one of those serendipitous events that happens to me every time I I, I shoot commercially. I I don't really shoot anything unless I think I can piggyback art on top. So I don't really do a lot of work, and nobody hires me anyway. I mean, it's like oh, the fashion world likes my, me a lot, but God forbid they they'd hire me because I'm way, way, way too messy for them. And then you have, you have worked for them though. You were Tom Ford. Yeah. That was my only big job. (laughs) And actually couldn't even, he wouldn't even use half the images because he's, his his sensibility is so different than mine. He was lovely to work for and a lovely man, but I, uh, I don't think, I think, you know, he kept trying to clean everything up. And I basically at one point said, well, why did you hire me? But he was so lovely, and he he didn't use half the imagery, and I still got paid, so I was very happy. So if I can do a piggyback, I'm going to do it. And what happened is I was doing literally a job for Mac. and The cosmetics firm. Cosmetics firm. I was shooting an eye, their glitter makeup, and I had two models, and whenever I was and whenever I asked for the models, they didn't know this until after, until after they saw the green pink caviar, which, which blew up everywhere. They were very unhappy, but then they... Uh, James Geiger, who had a Mac, he's he he embraced it eventually. And what uh, what I was doing is every time I, I hired the models because of how long their tongues were. And and whenever I, they changed the eye makeup, I said, "Could you come over here and lick off this candy off this glass?" <laughs> and we shot video <laughs> underneath. So you got candy colors because it was the color in the candy. No, I actually this is all cake decoration mixed with vodka. I said, "Okay." And so I had two models, and when one was getting made up, I, I had the and the other one come over, and, and we just started mixing. We were just playing. We didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, and it was the Mac videographer who did it with me. And, I, you know, he and I planned it, and he said, no, they don't care. And uh, they didn't care until they saw it. And then I think they did a 180, though, because he's a lovely man, James Geiger. And now they embraced it. It, it ended up going everywhere. And uh, it was just like playing. We were just playing. So, I, you know, it's not one of your paintings, but but green pink caviar has this super saturated color, super intense color, really kind of non-painterly color that's in sea print, like black orchid from from 2012. The color of her lips, which is black-ish with some yellow mixed in, is evocative of of colors you must like because you use over and over again. How what what do you use to get to the colors you use? Well, that's enamel paint. See how special it is. You think it's just in the paint? You don't think it's the it's decisions you're making about? I'm sure that's part of it. But enamel is just so lush. You know, uh, it's fine painters paint, and I don't. I, I, you know, I know you can create it with oil, but it's it's such it they're they're not sophisticated colors so much we use it we use them almost like digital you know c c m y b you know so in blue poles in the blue glitter of her eyeshadow you know it's not one blue it's a lot of different blues i mean it looks like a lot of decisions are getting yeah, made always there. always always yeah because of the layering you know we can 
like you can see, you can all go all the way back to, to the skin color. I don't know. I mean, I, you can create that illusion with oil, but it's literal in uh, uh, enamel. It's almost like sculpture. So it goes back to technical competence that the color and the depth of the color and the range of the color comes right out of what you can do technically. Yes, exactly. And it takes a long time to make these paintings. You know, it's, and the, the, the reason that I have a, a crew is because I could only make one a year. <laughs> When I was alone, it was just me and what I was alone for years, and then it was me and uh, my not my main assistant for I don't know ten years, and then then we had to do oh, five giant paintings for Reagan projects, and so that's when I went way up and and kids and had to teach everybody. It takes three years to learn how to work with enamel, literally three years. I've had people a little faster, but not much. Well, you, you, in addition to making paintings and, and video, as we talked about with, with Green Pink Caviar a moment ago, you also make C-prints. And I'm interested in how you determine what ends up as a painting and what ends up as, as a C-print. And so maybe to have that conversation, I want to bring up two pieces. One is a C-print, Wangeshi Gold 4 from 2009 and a painting that is almost certainly based on about the same five minutes of, <laughs> of, of photographic shooting. Drizzle, Wangeshi Mutu, 2010. Wangeshi's uh, past guest on the Man Podcast. Why, why did one of these images end up as a C-print and the other end up as a painting or vice versa? For a traditional artist, I don't, you know, I, I don't draw. I take photos, and so the photos for me are like drawings, and I, you know, they look, you know, and you talk to any artist who draws, it's like sometimes the idea is best in a drawing, right? And so for me, the photos, I don't. This is film number one. The Wangeshi's, I was still working just with film, and I didn't crop it. It's not touched, basically. I don't manipulate it. Whereas the drizzle painting, oh my God, that's a tongue from one negative. That's a necklace from another negative. The feathers are from another negative. That's a, a, a Frankenstein image, which we call mm -hmm. references. So all of the paintings, anything you see that's painted is a construct. It never existed as a photo. Ah, so do you, do you assemble things in Photoshop as, as a way of drawing, or is it when you're in front of a panel? Uh, in, oh, Photoshop. For, I spent a week making this image. Photoshop. Everything. That drip was really just, I created that drip all the way down. In Drizzle, I created it in Photoshop, going all the way down to the end of the page. There's nothing like that in any of the photos. <laughs> so all, all of the paintings are are you know what there's some of them that are 80 80 layers of photoshop do you save those files how do, what do you what absolutely, do you do with absolutely absolutely uh they're on my computer so museums and archival institutions are used to acquiring artists papers and having them be on paper do you think about what will happen to those files on the computer what what you want to have happen that would to be lovely yeah, but at this point, I'm not at that level. <laughs> Nobody's as interested. But, uh, yeah, that would be lovely. i definitely keep it. i even keep all the references. Because the very last thing, I don't even look at the references. I just, I just cut it all up. And uh, and then we just take them down, and then I just keep working until I, it's exactly the way I want. It doesn't. Nothing leaves here unless I'm in love with it. 
but so you save all those big computer files. They're they're as important as drawings would be to somebody who makes drawings on paper. Yeah, absolutely. I'm um, you know, I'm 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 really a more of a digital artist than almost anybody, even though I have 30 year 40 years really of painting history, maybe longer, 50 years maybe. Yeah, I started working with oil paint when I was about 16. Well, Marilyn Minter, thanks so much for talking with me, and congratulations on the show. It was a pleasure talking to you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.